1: hey keely hey chris welcome to hurt it on the sidelines Heard it it on the sideline with shotgun spratling
2: that's right the hurt it on the sidelines podcast is back back with a terrific guest who i think you guys will enjoy hearing from once again but before we get into that we've got to reach out to our first-time listeners and let them know what they're getting into here The Herding on the Sidelines podcast is part of the Peristyle Podcast family of shows. I'm your host, Shotgun Sprattling, and I'm here to help guide you through as we attempt to take you behind the curtain a little bit, give you a behind-the-scenes feel as we interview people around USC sports, including players and coaches, or in this instance, a national recruiting analyst. That's right, we've got 24-7 sports national analyst Brandon Huffman back with us to take a look at the upcoming commitment decision of 2022 offensive lineman Josh Connolly Jr., a five-star prospect from Seattle's Rainier Beach. And, yes, you heard me correctly. I did say five-star offensive lineman from the West Coast, one of those rare unicorns. USC has been unable to land since, well, if we're counting consensus five-star prospects, not since 2008 when the Trojans signed Matt Khalil, also had Tyron Smith in that class as well. Connolly isn't just a consensus five-star though. He's ranked number eight in the 24-7 sports rankings. USC hasn't signed an offensive lineman in the top 10 of the 24-7 sports rankings since the site was started. Now, before that, we do have the composite rankings that go back a little bit further than that. The last top 10 offensive lineman in the composite rankings signed by USC was Jeff Byers in 2004. So we're approaching on 20 years since USC signed an offensive lineman that was top 10 in the nation. And in the recent recruiting classes, USC struggled to even nab four-star offense linemen. So for Lincoln Riley to turn the program around, recruiting offensive linemen is imperative. And Connerly is the first big opportunity for Riley to make his mark on the Trojans' trenches. We talked to Brandon about the type of prospect Connerly is, why he decided to put in a crystal ball for USC on the offensive lineman, and why Huff decides he won't equate Connerly to a Sean Cody-esque or even a D'Anthony Thomas-esque type of recruit for the Trojans, no matter if he chooses USC or he decides not to come to USC. Now, one editor's note, since the recording of this podcast, Huffman was able to confirm that Josh Conley Jr. did indeed take an unofficial visit to Oregon over the weekend. He was in Eugene, something that we mentioned in the conversation as being rumored, but we had not confirmed. That has now been confirmed, but just wanted to point that out. Because you may have seen that on the Peristyle, but we do not mention that during the podcast itself. Without further ado, let's welcome in our guest, the man, the myth, the legend, the recruiting co-goat, Brandon Huffman. Huff, thanks for joining us. Good to be here, Shaka. Thanks for having me on. I see you didn't react to the co-goat. So do you know who your co-goat is, right? Oh, is that you? No, of course not me. No, that's it. I gotta give oh, you. Co-goat. I'm the co-goat. Yeah, you're the co-goat. co goat yeah you are the co goat i got to give you co-goat oh. status with uh with, with Greg Biggins. You know GB okay. and you guys just run run the West Coast. So so you guys are the co-goats in my mind. But uh, we had He's you over the. the sh- goat.
0: He's the I- goat. He has like ten years of seniority on me.
2: Yeah, but I still like you more, Huff. Yeah, you know, that's that's what that. it is. And, and I'm going to make sure I like, send this clip too big and it's just to make sure that I let him know. <laughs> we had you on the show last year at a similar point in the year to talk about a Seattle area, Washington kid, that had delayed his commitment and signing beyond National Signing Day. That was super athletic defensive tackle JT Two Tuum- Maloa, who ended up signing with o- Ohio State, became a part of the rotation this season, immediate impact type of guy. Back on the show once again, because there's a Seattle area kid that's delayed his commitment and signing beyond national signing day. Of course, now I'm talking about Josh Carnley jr. Another super athletic, big man, another big body prospect, those rare beings that are on the West coast uh, this time on the offensive line. First off what's in the water with the elite Washington <laughs> linemen deciding to change their timeline a bit.
0: Well, I don't know what's in the water, but I hope the water gets purified here because I'm a big fan of moving on when signing day comes and this is now two years in a row that the top prospect in the West just happens to be in my backyard, and they want to delay it. Now, thankfully for Josh, he's going to make his decision three months earlier than JT did. JT made it on the 4th of July. Connolly will make his decision on Friday the 8th. So there will be about a three-month difference there. But still, we should have put this class to bed two months ago, and instead we will finally get to put it to bed on Friday night, thankfully. And then I can move on focus specifically – all the 2023s and
2: 24s yeah give give our, our our listeners a little bit of behind the scenes of how it, how it is to kind of cycle out recruits in your mind because you do have to kind of flush the the previous class and we'll be talking about it all the time we'll see somebody that's a former player from a couple of years back and be like who is that and you you've probably mm-hmm. talked to him five times but the face you recognize it but the names you kind of you, you flush them a little bit how do you kind of cycle through when you uh being a national guy you're You've got a catalog of 500 to 1,000 guys probably every single year.
0: Yeah, and, you know, it always gets me, to in March or April where a guy just signed in February, or maybe he signed in December, I'll go to a 7-on-7 seven seven tournament, I'll go to a camp, and he's there to watch his teammates or his friends, and then they're like, hey, Huff, and I'm like, hey, what's up, man? Because I can't even remember who they were, even though two months ago I was just talking to him to write about his commitment. And so that's how it is. You, you, you process so many names and faces that when they move on, you hopefully let them move on. Now with the transfer portal, you can't necessarily put an end to those relationships. You kind of have to put a bookmark there because you never know in a year, two years, three years from now, they might be sliding back into your DM saying, hey, I'm about to go in the portal. Do you know any schools looking for this position? Or can you do a story about me in the portal? So you always gotta kind of got to keep them on standby just in case they end up in the portal these days.
2: So the transfer portal is affecting us as well, and how our brains work. The filing system that's in the back there, just making a, some slight adjustments because we usually recognize all the names, but sometimes it's the faces. At least that's the way it is with me. You know, when you see somebody in person, and you're like, I know that person. I've seen them. I've talked to them. Uh, but I'm blanking on the name. Or if we're discussing players, and like, remember that cornerback from Modern Day, or or from whatever school it may be, uh, and you try to, you know, it becomes a guessing game between the the analysts and stuff, trying to figure out exactly who we're talking about. But let's jump back to, to Josh Connerly and l- this this timeline, though. Do you see this becoming a trend for any recruits in the future, or is just this just a two-time thing prompted partly by the pandemic?
0: No, 100%. I mean, JT's was specifically affected by the pandemic. They were adamant that they were going to take all five official visits. They ended up taking four, but with the NCAA not allowing anybody in the class of 2021 to take an official visit, JT waited it out, took those in June and was able to get four of those trips in. But that was 100% because of the pandemic. With Connor Lee, it was a little bit different of a situation in that of the six schools that ended up in his final six, five of them had coaching changes. And the sixth, had their head coach interviewed for an NFL head coaching job in Michigan and Jim Harbaugh. Then you threw in the fact that he was a basketball player, so he wanted to focus on basketball. And in Josh's case, too, he didn't take any spring official visits last June because his mom was pregnant. He wanted to be there when his mom had the baby, and he didn't want to be on the road or have her be on the road when she was about to give birth. So June was just kind of a fluke time. Then you have the coaching changes in the fall. And that's why there was thought that, you know, maybe he was going to wait until February to sign when he didn't sign in December. Then it became, well, he was playing in the All-American Bowl, playing in the Polynesian Bowl. That was going to knock at least one week of official visits off. So then he pushed it back until March. Ultimately he took those two official visits to USC and to Oregon. But before he took the USC visit, he finally said April 8th as his announcement day. I think both are circumstantial because of the pandemic. I don't see this being a trend. And I think, with especially with nil the quicker and sooner you can get to that school and potentially start making money off your name image and likeness you're not going to put it back any longer i should say what i think will happen is guys you're going to see more and more guys early enrolling in january in my opinion maybe not do what quinn ewers did and reclassify a year to get paid but they're going to probably get to campus sooner rather than later i think these are two one-offs that we won't see consistently in the future
2: I think that's an interesting point, uh, talking about the NIL. Obviously, players have wanted to be early enrollees when they could, and sometimes that's been an issue with high schools allowing that and and whatnot, and that has prompted some different transfers in the past. Um, But reclassification may even become a thing, is just that opportunity to make money sooner. I mean, reclassification has been a huge thing in college basketball because of that same thing, the opportunity to make money a year earlier, if you're a one and done type of talent. So it's it's interesting that you mentioned that. And that should be something that, that could be uh, interesting to watch as we go. Uh, you, you talked about currently taking some visits this past month in March. He, he finished with USC. I believe you talked with jo- Josh or his father after each of those trips for recruiting update stories. After the USC trip, you decided to enter a crystal ball. Now, granted, it's a Five-level confidence, which is halfway, but still a crystal ball for USC. And now I think USC fans feel entitled to Josh Connerly because they see a Brandon Huffman uh, crystal ball. But what swayed your crystal ball pick having talked with the family or with Josh after each of those trips?
0: Now, this might be a dumb reasoning. So USC fans don't crucify me for this because there was obviously much more to it. But what ultimately made it the swing Was when I said, "Josh, can you send me a picture of you in USC gear or with the palm trees in the background? Something for your photo for your official visit story." And he sent me the picture with twenty-eight people in it—friends, family, USC coaches, staffers—you name it—they were all in it. To me, that spoke to what I had felt all along was the reason why USC was pulling him towards the Trojans, and that was. The comfort level he felt with the coaches, the comfort level he felt with having families family down in Southern California, especially in Los Angeles. Now remember, he is from Washington. He is from Seattle. He is a Seattle to the core as you get. He wants to talk Seahawks. He wants to talk about the old Sonics who probably moved when he was like three or four years old. But the point being that family has always been crucial to him and Seattle is where his immediate family is. But he's got the extended family in Los Angeles and that looked just like he was so comfortable. He was in his element at USC and decided to use a picture with everybody a part of it. To me, when you have a play like that, if you were somebody who watched the All-American Road to the Dome show, when he did his announcement there, when when he did his jersey presentation, he had a number of family members, coaches in the background from Rainier Beach High School. That shows you how tight-knit he is with the people around him. So to want to use that as a picture, that was kind of the final like, all right, that box is checked off because he'd be leaving his home, but he'd be going to kind of a second home. So that coupled with the fact that Lincoln Riley is obviously doing phenomenal things at USC from a recruiting standpoint, the ability to recruit at the level that he's been able to in as quick of a time since he got there, plus he's had a history of developing offensive linemen. Maybe it was Bill Bedenbaugh who was the offensive line coach at Oklahoma, but you look at a guy like Orlando Brown who got there with Bob Stoops, but really flourished in Lincoln Riley's offense. I think a lot of the questions that When you look at the five schools that had new coaches, USC and Lincoln Riley were probably the one that had the least amount of questions to ask. Yes, Mario Cristobal has an offensive line pedigree. When he was at Oregon as the offensive line coach, had an Outland Trophy winner in Panay Sewell. He went back to Miami. But you take what Lincoln Riley did at Oklahoma, now bring him to USC with his history of developing guys, all of the signs kind of pointing to the Trojans are going to be where Josh Connolly announces on Friday. Now, I did put it at a five because – as I said to you off there, there was still a week between that official visit and his decision. There wasn't the the typical time that happens in December or in February where there's a dead period. There was still time for him to take that official visit and then go back and visit Oregon or go back and visit Washington. There were reports that he was in Eugene this weekend. haven't been able to confirm him yet, but there's also talk that he might go back to Washington for an unofficial. So there wasn't enough for me to go fully confident with the 7 or 8. It's still 50-50, but... I haven't changed my crystal ball yet, folks, so you could feel entitled. You could feel scared. You could feel all the feelings. But right now, I still think that he's going to announce for USC come Friday night.
2: Now, some people mentioned that, you know, the, there was a rumor that he was in Eugene over the weekend. Like you said, you weren't able to com- confirm that. But to, to USC fans, they felt like it was a DeAnthony Thomas situation where, you know, DeAnthony Thomas had been the longtime USC commit um, and then flips the commitment at his signing day and, you know, stunned a lot of USC fans. But you told me off air, you don't think it's the same situation. Yeah. And I remember
0: being in the auditorium at Crenshaw High School. In fact, that was the first time I'd ever met Ryan Abraham in person. So shout out to uh, to you, Ryan. Uh, but I remember there was all this talk about the Oregon visit. And that was when social media was just starting to really take off when – recruiting was really starting to take off on the internet or I'm sorry, on social media, it had already been existing for on the internet, but <laughs> that was when Twitter was really starting to be a big tea leaf reader. And I remember when DeAnthony came in the side room and the organ gear head to toe, it confirmed what everybody thought was going to happen. The difference was DeAnthony was arguably the biggest name player to come from Los Angeles from, from a city section school in a number of years. Sure. The year before they signed Robert Woods, who, was an iconic Los Angeles football product. I mean, Mr. L.A., in my opinion, over the last 20 years, from his time at Sarah to USC to the Rams. But DeAnthony was like the Alpha Omega recruit from Los Angeles and committed to USC. And then Oregon had played in the national championship game the month before. Now, all of a sudden, there's this buzz that this guy, Chip Kelly, in his third year as a head coach, was going to flip DeAnthony Thomas from Oregon. Nobody thought that was going to happen. But he was a long time commit to USC from Los Angeles. The difference is Josh Connerly isn't the most dynamic player to come from your backyard in twenty years. He is an offensive lineman who might need a year to come in and you know develop and get the weight that he'll need to be an offensive of tackle. He's also from Seattle, not from Los Angeles. He also wasn't committed to USC. He's uncommitted. He's just taking his thing a little bit further. So I don't necessarily see the correlation there, other than. Oregon is the one common factor in the DeAnthony recruitment and the Josh Connolly recruitment, but I would feel that this is a little bit more uh, along the lines of DeAnthony. If it was Washington that Josh Connolly was committed to, mm. and then he took an official or an, um, a surprise late visit to Oregon.
2: Gotcha. Uh, if if Josh Connolly does ultimately pick USC, what would the Trojans be getting, or what will, will Oregon or Washington or whichever school that does ultimately get him? What what does Josh Connolly present at, as a prospect?
0: Well, I I think he has got as much upside as any left tackle that I've seen out West and and at least the last decade. You know, I'm not going to put him in the Tyrone Smith category because that's the best offensive lineman I've ever scouted, both on the West Coast and nationally. Eric Armstead I thought could have been an elite left tackle. I mean, he's now an elite defensive lineman. But those two are kind of the alpha and the omegas when it comes to offensive line recruiting. Connerly reminds me a little bit of Armstead in that they have that basketball background and that they both started out as defensive linemen. The difference was Armstead was adamant about playing defensive line in college, which is why I think ultimately Oregon got him. But with Josh Connerly, he knows the offensive line is where his future is. He actually came into high school thinking he was going to play some running back or defensive line. He was a youth running back, but they both had that basketball background. And I think that's what separated him. And if you look at Armstead and you look at Tyrone Smith, where Connolly is similar to them is that he's got a frame that is 260 pounds, 265. There's still going to be good 30 pounds of weight put on him when he gets to college. When he gets to the nutrition program, when he gets sports, or in a strength and conditioning program, they're going to put good weight on him. He's not fat at all. He's got you know the, the perfect frame for a college offensive lineman coming in as a freshman, and now that college staff can put the good weight on him. But he's got magical footwork. I mean, when you look at his feet, you see a guy who's had a career in basketball. He moves so well in his feet. He's got the length. He's got the arm size. He's got the hand size. He's got the nastiness. He's smart. I mean, this is a very sharp kid. One of only two prospects in the 2022 class that had an offer from all 12-pack 12 Pac-12 schools. And why is that significant? Because we know that Stanford doesn't just offer a lot of players. They offer good football players that have good academics, and Connor Lee had Stanford really in his uh, probably in his short list before he cut it down for much of the time. So this is a sharp kid to go along with being a very athletic kid. I think he can come and he'll understand college offenses pretty quickly. Really, the only thing that I think keeps him and remember this was the case with Tyrone too when he got to USC is you still need a year probably to get that physical development because he's not coming in at two ninety five or 300 pounds when when you're going up against defensive linemen that are going to outweigh 15 to 20 pounds you need that year and so because he's not enrolling in january like a lot of the early enrollees did and he's missing out on spring practice and the offseason conditioning you know can he come in in june and get ready physically in time for august to be able to play by september i know looking at usc's depth chart they've got a grad transfer coming in so maybe you start out with that guy but as if he comes to usc As he gets bigger and stronger, maybe he ends up taking over there in the middle point of the season. But he's a guy that I don't anticipate will be not on the two deep early on. I anticipate he'll be on the two deep and starting and permanently starting by his sophomore year at the absolute latest.
2: Yeah, one of the things I love watching is uh, the drill he has where he's on on his knees and then jumps up without his hands and then does his kickback steps and stuff, just shows the athleticism, shows the ability to move uh, that you don't don't normally see from a big offensive lineman. Um, I, I thought you it's, it's interesting point talking about the the fact he needs to add weight and the fact that because he's going to be coming in six months later than potentially early enrollees, it's going to put that clock a little bit further back. It sounds like. So, uh, you know, if he comes to USC, they did get a, a grad transfer and Bobby Haskins, they do have five guys returning that have some experience. So do you see him as maybe uh, a guy that you work in gradually as the season progresses, and that's the ideal if he does end up at USC. Um, and then, if hey, if he can take off by the end of the season, that's great. Because we've seen this similarly also. Austin Jackson was very similar, a guy that was 265 pounds. Now he showed up on campus by the time fall started, had gained that 30 pounds, but it took him a little bit of time to get used to the weight. He was a little slow-footed initially uh, with that weight, and then he you know, was able to mold his body a little bit better as the, his freshman season went on. Is that how you see Josh Carly, um, you know, kind of progressing as he gets to college?
0: I do, and the difference there between you know, us and Jackson and Josh, like you said, was that extra time that he put that weight on. Josh can play in the 275-280 range. The problem was when the football season would end in November or December, he'd go right onto the hardwood, and then burn off all that weight. He played two All-American games, then he played hoops. They were playing all the way until the end of February. So instead of putting on the weight like a lot of offensive linemen would do when the season's over, going to the weight room, he's on the basketball court running up and down. So he can play that 275-280 range. I mean, Josh, trust me, it's not that hard to put on 13 to 20 pounds in a short <laughs> amount of time. But I think he can do it. And I think by the time, say, September rolls around, he's probably going to be 285 280, 285, just with a, you know, a normal diet. And I would imagine that where he announces on, on Friday night, he's going to get kind of a plan from that school to say, okay, you don't graduate until June. So over the next two months, this is where we want you to be. So when you get here, we can do the rest, but they're going to give him a plan of what they want him to be. And I think that he'll be able to do it. You, you know, you look back a year ago, jt Two Molowau was in a similar boat so he was 270 275 he had played basketball right after football season had ended at Eastside catholic he didn't enroll at ohio state until july but he had spent that entire off season right after basketball season doing the work putting the weight on then going on official visits so you knew he was eating right but it wasn't like there needed to be when you're an elite talent you don't need that much of a learning curve and i think with josh Really, it's only physical. It's not gonna be a guy he needs to adjust to being away from home. He'll need to adjust to being on a college campus. He doesn't need to adjust to any of that. It's literally just gonna be putting on that weight to be able to manage defensive linemen. And I think that he'll be able to come into the USC probably 15, 20 pounds heavier than he is right now, because he's no longer playing basketball. There's no AAU a part of it anymore. Mm-hmm. Now it's just about being ready to be a football
2: player. Yeah, I remember those days of going from football to basketball and being like, yeah, I'm in great shape. I'm in great shape. And then you run up and down the court uh, for, for five minutes. You're like, whoo! I'm not in the same shape that I need to be in for basketball. And your body does change as the season progresses, um, a, as you get ready. And, you know, that football weight does come off a little bit, like you said. A quick aside, you mentioned if he was ta- JT was taking those official visits, he was eating right. What's your, uh, you know, having seen all these kids, talked to all the kids, the parents, what's the one meal you've been jealous of? on an official visit, you wish you were a recruit and were getting to go on an official visit and and eat?
0: Well, I'm going to go old school here, and USC fans will remember this. I am a huge, huge fan of Greek food. And so when they were going to the Papadakis Tavern uh, back in the day, that was always one that you'd hear recruits talk about, and they would just talk about how good the food is and, and how plentiful it was. When I remember talking to JT after the official visit and talking to his dad, all they talked about was the food and all the restaurants and being a Southern California native like I am, it was making me sad more than it was making me hungry because it made me miss Southern California so much. You, you know, a lot of these schools, they do the, the official visits. So it's like themed with the region, themed with the area. Los Angeles has such good food that there's so many different options that you're like, and you didn't even hit this spot or this spot or this spot, which would have <laughs> probably convinced me to go there. But I will definitely say when I hear, when I talk to kids that have visited SC or UCLA, even San Diego state, when they talk about the different places they eat, it just, those always make me the most jealous because it makes me miss home.
2: I got you. You know, so you're not missing out on the Lincoln Riley barbecue. Uh, you know, the brisket that he made a couple of years ago, We've got to give him some tips on <laughs> Which, that. I,
0: I had some brisket that looked like that this weekend at a little barbecue joint. I won't throw them under the bus. But I was in Boise for an event this weekend, went to a barbecue joint and boy, their brisket looks sad, just like Lincoln Riley's.
2: Well, good thing Lincoln doesn't have to cook for anybody in L.A. There's so many places to go, so many great places that he'll be able to take uh, recruits elsewhere or get, get, get it catered into the house, the nice house that he ha- now has whenever he brings people oh, yeah. over.
1: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.
2: Obviously, Josh Connolly could be a huge impact recruit for USC, not only on the field. But could he be kind of the Sean Cody-esque recruit for Lincoln Riley at USC? Obviously, everyone remembers Sean Cody being the big linchpin recruit uh, for Pete Carroll that kind of turned things around. Now, Lincoln Riley has picked up big-name recruits already at USC, flipping Malachi Nelson and flipping Makai Lemon and Relique Brown and getting the Branch brothers. But all those guys had a had a you know already had a relationship. Many of them already committed to Oklahoma does Josh Connolly kind of stand out in a different way? And also because it is such a position of need and a position where USC has struggled mightily to get their top guys the last half a decade.
0: Well, I think he's Sean Cody in the sense that the difference between him and Sean Cody, Sean Cody was a Southern California recruit. Hmm. And that started a decade of dominance where USC just was not losing in-state local recruits under Pete Carroll. And if they did, it was a unicorn maybe a Jimmy Clausen going to Notre Dame, but it didn't happen very often. But Sean Cody was the guy who made going to USC for the Southern California kids kind of the thing to do. Now, the difference here is that Connolly is from Seattle. So where I would put this recruit is he's Sean Cody, but if Sean Cody were in the Pac-12 footprint, just not in Los Angeles, and that, hey, now the kids that are in the Pac-12 footprint – they're seeing that you can go to USC. You don't have to stay home. You don't have to go nationally. I mean, Blair and I Bernie and Google and I have a podcast called the West of the rest. And I swear for two years, and we've been doing it. All we talk about is the West coast kids that leave the region to go play elsewhere. And we've seen that continue to be a problem in recent years. So Connerly is a big victory. If they can get Josh Connolly. it's a big victory for a number of reasons. One, you keep the best player in the West coast on the West coast Two you get a player who's at a Pac-12 state in the Pac-12 footprint to stay in the Pac-12. Three, you get an elite offensive tackle, which as you mentioned, there aren't a lot of those out West year in and year out. There might be one or two, but an elite player like that to keep him is three is big Four, you now beat probably two of the schools that are going to be your toughest recruiting competition. One that for sure is going to be your toughest recruiting competition in Oregon, but Washington, you're going to want to recruit to the state. If you're USC, you're going to beat other Pac-12 schools to get them. And then lastly, you don't think Lincoln Riley has a little bit of uh, excitement in the fact that he might be beating, one, Mario Cristobal, and two, that school in Norman, Oklahoma that he just spent some time at that I think their fans are always in your DMs or at least on your on your timeline. I mean, there's a little bit of an extra pettiness that I think could be assumed if he gets Josh Connerly to pick them over Oklahoma. Now, while I think Oklahoma is out of it, in my opinion, the fact that they still got an official visit from him in January, the fact that they're still recruiting him, I think that adds to it. But there's a number of reasons why it's a significant win. And so I think if you call Sean Cody, but if Sean Cody was today from Oakland or Sean, uh, Sean Cody was from Phoenix, it would have that resonance. I think Cody, the difference was he was a Southland guy.
2: Gotcha. Um, you talked about you and Blair doing the, the podcast and talking about players all over. Um, what is the biggest thing that has to happen for that to stop? Is it just is there a facilities upgrade that needs to be done? Not, I'm not talking about just at USC, but, you know, on the West Coast in general, because there's been so many impact players that have gone elsewhere. And you obviously saw it in the college football playoff. With Georgia and Alabama and Ohio State all having, you know, USC uh, or USC former commits or former uh, targets, uh, and then just a number of West Coast players, and that's been lending itself to the, the West Coast just not having anyone in the college football playoff, you know, and, and that you know not having the talent to compete with some of those schools. What's the biggest thing that has to happen to to stop that that exodus?
0: Well, I think you're seeing the first thing. And, you know, I I don't think other Pac-12 schools wanted to hear this or accept this, but a good USC is good for the Pac-12. It's good for college football. It's like in college hoops. If Arizona and UCLA are healthy, then the Pac-12 is presumed to be healthy. If USC is healthy in football, then the Pac-12 is presumed to be healthy in football. So I think it's showing that, hey, the the Pac-12 can recruit those guys. If there's guys in the conference or if there's schools in the conference that make it worth going to, there's a reason that CJ Stroud went to Ohio State. There's a reason Bryce Young went to Alabama. There's a reason that DJ went to Clemson. There's a reason these West Coast guys were looking to leave. The Pac-12 was not giving them a reason to. Those other conferences were. So now if the Pac-12 can continue to build momentum with the coaching change at USC, that was big hiring a good recruiter at Oregon as a head coach and Dan Lanning and a staff that recruits was big getting a guy at the university of Washington that will change things, how they were done from Jimmy Lake. That was big. Utah continuing to be what Utah has been under Kyle Whittingham and not retiring despite some of the reports that he might retire at the end of the year. That was big. So now all of a sudden the PAC 12 goes from, well, they're only good after dark to now. Hey, let's keep an eye on the PAC 12. They might have a couple of trendy picks for the playoffs, That's good for the rest of the conference. That's going to – what USC does raises how Colorado and Oregon State and Washington State and Arizona and Arizona State, how those schools have to recruit. It's going to raise how seriously UCLA has to treat football. It shows Oregon and Washington that their last decade – of success is not gonna be as hand gifted to them because there's good leadership at USC. So it's gonna raise the stakes in the whole rest of the conference. And what that does is with a Josh Connolly type of commitment, it shows now with Josh Connolly, with Relique Brown, with uh, Damonte Jackson, uh, even as Zion Branch, you know, Three of those guys were, I think, three of the top four players on the West Coast. Totoro McMillan going to Arizona. That's big for the Pac-12, too. I mean, he stayed in the Pac-12 footprint. He's going to to an upstart in Arizona. Those are the kind of recruiting battles that the Pac-12 has to win. But it's when you can beat those national schools that have been just taking guys hand over fist the last few years from the region to then take them back and keep them here. That helps the Pac-12. That helps USC, obviously, but it really helps the Pac-12 because it raises the stakes for them.
2: I, I think the investment uh, that USC's made in Lincoln Riley, and you know, I was told ten years, uh, about twelve million dollars a year. Um, that's a huge investment, and I think that just forces other Pac-12 teams that hey, you either start investing money too or you get left in the dust and just be a, you know, a seller-dweller uh, consistently. So I think that's only going to raise the stakes for the, the Pac-12 and you will know, we'll, we'll cause more things, whether it be facilities or you know every NIL enhancement that, that can be. So as that continues, that will lead to more players be, being, staying in the, in the Pac-12 footprint as well. So hopefully the West Coast will get back on its feet per se, uh, to, to, to see what they can do and maybe get a national championship in college football or college basketball for the first time in 25 years. has been, uh, It's been a long time since that has happened for, for basketball and then uh, since USC for football. So um, what's the biggest thing you've taken away from recruits that have been recruited by Lincoln Riley since he's been at USC? Because we're talking about the changing of the narrative. Uh, what's been the biggest takeaway that you've uh, had you know, listening to people are talking about you know going on unofficial visits and, and checking out USC. What, what's kind of stood out to you?
0: Well, it's it's Lincoln Riley himself. You know, in the past, you know, under Clay Helton and even under Steve Sarkeesian, but really under Clay Helton, it was the tradition of USC. It was the new facilities. It was the the upgrades, the Heisman trophies. But now recruits are talking about Lincoln Riley. Guys talked about, and, and this is not a shot at Clay Helton. Guys talked about how much they like Clay Helton as a person. But you had to go five or six things deep into a visit recap to hear Clay Helton's name even brought up. It was, it's in Los Angeles, it's near Hollywood. They got great facilities, great history, great tradition, the Coliseum, the uniforms, the Heisman Trophies, Heritage Hall, Clay Helton. Now you talk to K-Winney visits USC, oh man, Coach Riley was awesome. It's not the tradition. It's not the Heisman Trophy. They talk about that, but that's after they talk about Lincoln Riley. I mean, Lincoln Riley is star power. If you wanted to say, you know, who's the hottest named head coach in Los Angeles right now? It's not the guy who won a Super Bowl or went to two Super Bowls. It's Lincoln Riley. And I think that that's what USC, that's what the USC job entails. That's what it requires. Pete Carroll was a rock star, was a celebrity. I started covering recruiting. the the spring before they won their first national championship under Pete Carroll in 2003. And it was before social media, but even then Pete Carroll was a rock star. Now Lincoln Riley comes in. By that point, Pete Carroll was becoming a rock star. I should say Lincoln Riley is already a rock star when he took over at USC and recruits that's resonating with them. The other thing that my takeaway is this is just from observing. And again, not a shot at the previous staff, not a shot, at the recruits that were recruited, but there were a lot of players that were offered under the previous staff that would leave you scratching your head. And I know you and I have talked about this, me and Gerard have talked about it, like some of the players that have gone into the portal the last couple of years, the old USC would have never recruited them. Now you're not seeing a bunch of offers go out, immediate commitments coming on because USC was low-hanging fruit or the recruit was low-hanging fruit. You're seeing like, hey, there's a process now. If you get an offer from USC, that means something, that resonates. It's going back again to the Pete Carroll days where when a kid from Southern California got an offer from USC, with the exception of a Deshaun Jackson and, you know, a couple guys here and there, Brian Price. Most of the times those Southern California kids stayed in Southern California to play for him. But you're not seeing a whole bunch of offers going out now. You're seeing evaluation. You're seeing the observations of those guys to see if they fit the culture, to see if they fit when they come to campus. And I think that that's something that USC needs to be. They need to be pickier. They need to be more judicious and more deliberate in their recruiting approach. And I think you're seeing that under Lincoln Riley. And to me, that's always a sign of a coach and a program that's teetering on the brink of destruction is when way more offers go out because you're just trying to generate any buzz you can about the program. A program that's in a really strong position, a program that gets to be picky and choosy is the program that's training the right way.
2: How about the reaction uh, um, of Lincoln Riley's hiring at USC, the coaching staff that's been assembled, how they're going about it, with the recruiting power brokers? And, you know, Whether that be the seven-on-seven seven coaches, the high school coaches, the trainers, et cetera, the guys that are in the mix with a lot of those high-profile players, what have they taken away from it? Because I know you talk to the players. I know you talk to families. You also talk to college coaches and high school coaches and everyone in between. So what's kind of been the reaction on the adult side of it?
0: Well, I think you know, look back a month ago when you had the Under Armour camp down in Southern California, you had the Battle at the Beach in Southern California, and USC had their junior day on that Saturday. So they had a ton of players that came out and wanted to camp at Under Armour. They wanted to be at junior day. But what I think really resonated with a lot of the, the power brokers, as you will, um, was what they did on that Friday night. They called it a night with USC football. Essentially, knowing that there is going to be a number of of out-of-state, out-of-region, seven-on-17s coming into town, knowing that they still had their massive junior day, their first real big junior day under Lincoln Riley, instead of just saying, hey, we're a swamp for Saturday, we got to focus on Saturday, they kind of did an impromptu that looked like it had been planned for months, Friday night, where they had players come to the Coliseum, where they had players... You know, go to the school, get a visit, get to tour, do all that stuff, and and I think that that was something that really resonated because USC could have just said, hey, what you know, we got Junior Day, we're only going to focus on Junior Day. Sorry, can't come Saturday, don't come at all. Instead, they set aside Friday night for a number of teams to come in. There probably must have been 150, 200 kids that were on campus on Friday night for that night with USC football. It may not have had the one-on-one action that you know, say, a Junior Day does with a lot of those recruits, but it gave those out of state programs something to talk about and you look at the just the effort and they made it look like it was an important type of event to be at and it definitely earned goodwill with those out of state programs that have maybe their top recruits are being recruited by usc but it allowed those kids that are you know the 15th to 25th best players on those teams something to be excited about as well
2: yeah and one of those teams was fsp which is the big 7 on 7 program in the seattle area USC has a history of getting some big time prospects from the Pacific Northwest, but not necessarily recruiting the area all that frequently. It's kind of a pick and choose. You know, you go in for a Taylor Mays or Max Brown as a five star quarterback or uh, Zach Banner. And I'm sure you can name a, a couple more of there. But, but who are a couple of the players USC may be in the mix for from the Pacific Northwest in the, the upcoming classes?
0: I think Jaden Wayne is obviously one that they're still targeting heavily, the five-star defensive lineman from Tacoma Lincoln. In fact, uh, more recently, USC got Julian Simon out of Lincoln High School, mm. and he was teammates with Jaden Wayne at Lincoln. So to be in with a top player in the Pacific Northwest, uh, again, is a big thing. Uh, Caleb Presley, four-star defensive back, cornerback out of Rainier Beach. Uh, you know, He's a guy that has been spending some time with DeAndre Moore, with uh, – Makai Lemon with Malachi Nelson, you know, can De- DeAndre Moore and, and Kelly Presley follow Lemon and Malachi Nelson to USC? Well, that's why they're recruiting him. Uh, Jason Brown, a 2024 running back out of O'Day, the same high school that produced Taylor Mays. USC offered him early on. Micah Van Welos, who has a connection to USC with Josh Henson offering him when he was at Texas A&M. Now he's at USC. He's planning to take a visit down to USC in the coming weeks. And, you know, there was a sad loss of Dave nickel last month uh, after a very brief illness. Uh, awful news to hear. When the first news first broke that he was taking some time away, that was the first a lot of people heard that Luke Heward was joining the USC staff or was even on the USC staff at the time, coming in as the interim inside receivers coach. Luke Heward is from the Pacific Northwest. The Heward family is royalty. In the Northwest, his nephew, Sam, is a quarterback at Washington. Uh, both his older brothers, Brock and Damon, played at the University of Washington. Uh, one and Both were in the NFL. One's now a system athletic director. Well, Luke went a different route. He went to North Carolina. He was on staff at Texas A&M. He doesn't have that loyalty to the University of Washington, but he has that connection in Seattle. So he's going to continue to be a guy that's going to recruit that region. So you're going to see, I think, more Pacific Northwest guys looking at USC because they're seeing some guys going there over these last couple of years. And I think that's what helps. You're still staying in the Pac-12 you're getting far enough away from home where, you know, it's a, a flight to get there, but it's also only a two hour flight. So it's not that far.
2: You, you don't have to be stuffed and cramped in a seat. You know, if you're a six foot five lineman <laughs> or whatever it may be, um, if they, if USC is to get Josh Conley, that'd be another piece from the Pacific Northwest, another example for players to say, Hey, maybe that's a, that's an option for me. Um, but it would also be great recruiting men- momentum for the 2023 class. Now, obviously, USC's already got a couple of really big pieces in there with, with Lemon and Nelson and, and Branch, um, but been a little stagnant since then. You know, haven't got many guys since then, so how would that commitment kind of give them a little bit momentum going forward and maybe give us your projection of where this USC 2023 class with some of the names that are being thrown out could be ranked by, when it's all well, said and done?
0: Yeah, to answer the first part, Josh Connolly's teammate is Caleb Presley. They were teammates at Rainier Beach this last year. So, you know, if a teammate goes there, like we talked about Julian Simon potentially affecting Jaden Wayne, Josh Connolly could have an effect on Caleb Presley in addition to the relationship he has with the other guys that are there. So that's something that, you know, is key. You're not going to want to get your entire recruiting class from Seattle when you have the recruiting kind of um, – Background and the recruiting fertile grounds in Los Angeles or Southern California. But if you can go pluck a guy or two out of there, you'll surely take it. Now, I remember saying this on signing day, on the morning of the first signing period in December, USC ranked 105th in the country. And I want to say they were 11th in the Pac 12. The 11th is something that we can get used to because they're going to finish in the top 11 nationally, not 11th in the Pac 12. They're going to be a top five, top 10 at the worst type of program moving forward. And you saw it immediately with the flipping of Malachi Nelson and Makai Lemon, then getting Zechariah Branch. So they may only have a handful of commits in 2023, but all are five stars. And that's the kind of class that you need to have when you're USC. You need to have depth, but you need to have elite star power at the top. And I think USC, they're not gonna be one of those schools where people are like, oh, we wanna see what USC is gonna do on the fall, on the field before we make our choice. They're bringing in guys to come in and compete right away. They're not expecting it to be a two or three year fix. The roster might have shown that it needed to be a two or three year fix. But with the transfer portal, you can make that fix in six months and be ready by September. So now USC has the horses and the coaching to be competitive early on. You're not going to see guys waiting until October, November to get their first look you know, at Riley's offense. He's got five or six years at Oklahoma to show what his offenses look like. So there's going to be, I think, eventually, and you're going to really see it, in my opinion, happen in the spring. When official visits return in the spring, like we didn't have the last two years, we had them in June last year, didn't have it all in 2020. But with the early official visits again, I think you'll start to see the momentum and you're going to end up like you did under Pete Carroll, where it's I better commit now to make sure I have a spot there instead of trying to drag this out longer, you're not going to see that happen anymore because it's, once again, going to be a very popular ticket.
2: And USC has been a school that dominated when the, the, there was only one signing period because they could close so well with the winter, all those type things, the advantages they had there. Haven't necessarily adapted as well to the early signing period. Took a little bit longer. So you know if, if people are trying to, hey, I got I to gotta make sure I get my spot, that helps out when you go toward December and USC can close a little bit quicker there. Brandon, I got one more question for you. How are you dealing with your son, Cade, who's a big Rams fan, winning a Super Bowl before you, a Browns fan, uh, were were able to to win one? You know, when your fanhoods collide like that, how, how are you dealing with it right now?
0: It's like when a train hits a skateboard. That's how our worlds are colliding. His is the train with all the momentum on the tracks. Mine's the skateboard. It's like, what are you trying to do being a big boy on the tracks? And I remember when I was, let's see, 13 years old. The Browns lost to the Broncos in the AFC Championship game for the third time in like five years, and thinking, oh, "Okay, I have the whole rest of my life." Five years later, the Browns weren't even existing in Cleveland anymore. And in the first draft, of the Ra- the Baltimore Football Team, or even the Ravens, then draft Jonathan Ogden and Ray Lewis, a cornerstone left tackle and a middle linebacker. That's what it's like being a Browns fan. Meanwhile, my guy over here got to see his team in the Super Bowl four years ago, and then got to see him win a Super Bowl this last year. Like, I don't even know what it's like to be nervous on the day of the Super Bowl because my team's never in it. <laughs> Meanwhile, watching this game with him and watching how tormented he was, it was just nauseating. Like, oh, please spare me. You might lose a Super Bowl. I mean, I would love to just get something that proves that my team was in the Super Bowl and his was a win and a loss. So It's, it's unfair, and he likes to taunt me. And, you know, there's the part of me that being from Southern California, I'm happy for all my Rams friends and family members. My cousin is a been a season ticket holder since they were in Anaheim. I was stoked for him. I was stoked for my son, kind of, because <laughs> I wanted to experience the joy of my team just getting I don't care if my team gets annihilated in the Super Bowl. I just wanted to get to a conference championship game again, let alone a Super Bowl. So it's unfair, this little 16-year-old punk, gets to see his team in the Super Bowl twice, and then rub it in.
2: What would happen if uh, if the Browns did play the Rams? Would you guys be able to watch it together, or would you guys yeah. need to be in separate, separate rooms or separate uh, cities for that?
0: Well, I would think that we would probably need to be nowhere near each other because <laughs> the fact that it would be just such a new feeling to be stressed out about a game in February would be so rare that I probably wouldn't want anybody to talk to me, anybody <laughs> to be around me. I remember watching Game 5 – of uh, the 2020 uh, NBA Finals, when the Lakers lost on that Friday night, I was a mess to watch. Then they lost, and then I was pretty relaxed on that Sunday when they won. But I was so wildly tight knowing that they had to win then because they could lose the next two. When it's a one-game winner-take-all, I couldn't imagine having anybody be around and let alone my own son. I don't want to experience that moment with him. He and I went to the Pro Bowl together. We were down in Las Vegas. I was down there for the National Preps event. So we went to the Pro Bowl. And it was funny just listening to him because – He was so excited to beat the Pro Bowl. And then when he realized there were no Rams playing in that game and he was wearing his Cooper Cup jersey and people kept coming up to him saying, hey, good luck or, oh, (laughs) Bengals are going to beat you. He spent the next week stressing out. So I can only imagine that what me, an old guy, would be feeling if my team finally got to the Super Bowl. I would not want to have anybody around me.
2: If he was five or six years older, then he could have used that and just pretended like he was Cooper Cup. Because how many people actually knew what Cooper Cup looks like in Vegas? Exactly, and
0: you know the fact that he's a, he too is a skinny white receiver from the state of Washington would have probably made him a very nice doppelganger. <laughs> fun fun fact though, Cooper Cup's receiver that was opposite Cooper Cup in college at Eastern Washington, who was kind of the veteran leader that Cooper Cup learned under, is the head coach for my son's high school football team. So obviously, when my son gets to hear his coach talk about what Cooper Cup did as a college player that made him so good. My son perks up even more because that's his favorite player on his favorite team, which won a Super Bowl. My team hasn't even been to one.
2: Elite team there at Eastern Washington had Vernon Adams as the quarterback. Eventually goes to to Oregon, um, and then Cooper Cup comes out and become blows up and becomes the player he is after a nice little growth spurt. Uh, going everything. into college, which really helped there because people want to point out uh, his his high school ranking and everything to us and how we missed everyone. But Brendan Huffman doesn't miss anybody. He, he knew about Cooper Cup back then too, but uh, the growth <laughs> spurt definitely helped him there. Well, Huff, thanks so much for taking the time. Uh, give us one last plug. What time and where can we find this Josh Connerly commitment on on Friday?
0: So make sure to tune into CBS Sports HQ on Friday night, 6 p.m. Pacific time. Most of you are on the West Coast. Some of you might be in other regions, but it'll be at 6 o'clock Pacific time. Do the math, figure out what time that is in your region. But CBS Sports HQ it'll be streaming live on CBS Sports HQ. Uh, you can catch it there. We'll have I'll be on the scene. Uh, we'll have a reaction. We'll have plenty of reaction pieces. Again, keep an eye on my crystal ball. I'm still riding with the Trojans unless I unless I feel otherwise. As of right now. I'm of the opinion that USC is going to be getting good news on Friday night.
2: We'll see what happens. You know, keep an eye on, you have that bookmarked, uh, the Brandon Huffman crystal ball page, if anything changes, the, so you know whether to fret uh, or, or freak out if you're a USC fan. But, Huff, uh, thanks so much for taking the time to jump on and talk a little Josh Connolly, a little Pacific Northwest, and, you know, where this USC program is going as far as the recruiting goes. Appreciate you having me on, Shadi. Thanks so much to my guy, the co-recruiting goat, greatest of all time, Brandon Huffman, for joining us on the Hurt It on the Sidelines podcast before Josh Curnley Jr.'s big announcement on Friday, April 8th, great day, my birthday. Thanks as well to all of you for taking the time to listen. If you could, please make sure you like, subscribe, leave a five-star review, all those other things, and let us know your favorite part of the show on Twitter, on the Parastyle message board, on YouTube in the comments. I check all those out. We appreciate you all and hope that you'll be back with us soon on the next episode that we have. I'm your host, Shotgun Sproutling. This has been the Herded on the Sidelines podcast, a part of the Peristyle Podcast family. Peace.
1: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you.